hey, let me tell you where you can meet me. We're going to be in Psalm 43 this morning. Psalm 43. So if you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, I just learned before the service that you guys generally use the CSB translation, and I'm going to be in the ESV this morning, so I apologize for that. If those letters mean absolutely nothing to you, then don't even worry about it. Just Google Psalm 43 ESV, and you can pull that up on your phone. Um, Happy Father's Day as well to you dads. Uh, What an amazing calling God has put on your life to love and shepherd your children. So um, I hope you feel encouraged today, dads, and loved. Um, I was was telling some folks, I opened my Bible this morning, and I found a little note from my daughter in there, and I was like, oh, that's so sweet, and it said, Happy Mother's Day on it. I was like, she just repurposed the Mom's Day card, was like, yeah, it's good enough. I was like, Fair. Um, all right, let's, let's read Psalm 43 together. Um, I'll read this, you follow along with me, and then uh, we'll go to the Lord and ask for him to guide our time in prayer. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I I just want to ask that you would pour out your blessing and your spirit on True Life Church. Um, I ask that everybody in here, as, as this tiny mi- microcosm of your kingdom here in Arvada, Lord, would just be filled up by your light and your truth. Um, God, as, and as we come to your word, I just want to acknowledge that for many of us, um, the full experience of joy in your presence is not always uh, our, our day-to-day real-life experience. In fact, many of us would say we believe many things about you, that we affirm many of the Christian doctrines of the faith, and yet maybe coming in here this morning dry, maybe coming in here this morning distant, distracted. However we find ourselves coming to you this morning, I just pray that your word would be life to us, that your word would give us exactly what we need this morning to experience the joy of your presence that you offer to us. And so I pray in this next few minutes of listening to your word that you would lead us in that way. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we have here in Psalm 43 is the experience of a divided soul. A divided soul, what I mean by that is if if you've ever experienced this in your own life, perhaps um, where there's been a disconnect or divide between what you know is true and your experience of that truth, if you've ever had that experience before, then, then you can relate to Psalm 43. I'll give you an example of this. Um, when, I, when, I first got, when I first got married, the only time I got married, uh, when, I, when I got married, um, my groomsmen all chipped in and purchased, as their groomsmen gift to my wife and I, tickets to go skydiving, um, which is a really sneaky good gift because if someone buys it for you, you have to do it, and it was non-refundable. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, I'd always been like, I want to go skydiving someday. And it was kind of like, now you have to, 
right? So they got us tickets to go skydiving just up in Longmont here. And, uh, and so my wife and I, like two months married, one of the first things we did as a brand new married couple was we went skydiving together. And when you go skydiving, they give you this little tutorial at the very beginning where they assure you over and over again that you will be safe. Like they show you how the equipment works. They show that it's state of the art, that it's up to date. Um, in fact, we were the last jump of the day and my instructor, because you know, you're kind of like, tandemed in like one of those babies in a carrier, one of those ergos. That's kind of how you go the first time. They don't let you go solo. My, uh, my tandem uh, instructor, he said this would be his 20th jump of the day. I was like, okay, so he jumps like 20 times a day, five days a week. He's doing like thousands of jumps a year. Um, and he's like, everybody's safe. And here's how the parachute works. And there's a backup parachute. It's like, you will be safe. And I believed him. I believed I would be safe and that this would be fun and a good story to tell, and maybe a sermon illustration someday. So, um, so then we get in the plane, we go up, 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 and as we're getting higher and higher, everything that they just told me started to become completely obsolete. I was like, I was freaking out, right? And uh, a little did I know, my wife was like right next to me, the opposite. She was like, let's go, like give me the certification today. Um, and so then, you know, they, they open the door, and the guy goes in front of me, because um, there's like eight people who are all doing the jump together. And the, and the guy goes up to the door, um, the first guy to go, and he jumps out. And I'm like, well, he's dead. He just jumped out of plane. Like, yeah, that's not what you're supposed to do. And then we kind of make our way up to it, and you're staring out, looking at like the fact that you're about to jump. And like your mind is just disconnected. It's like, you are not supposed to be jumping out of an airplane. And you jump, and of course, everything is fine. See, that was my experience of I, I knew and I believed and I was assured by all measurements that I would be safe. And yet when it came time for the experience of it, I doubted and completely did not believe everything that I believed like 30 minutes prior to that. Right? That's the experience. You know something is true and yet you're not really living as if it is true. Has that ever been an experience of yours? Have, has that ever been your experience with God? You know things about God. You intellectually believe things about him, but your experience in life, whatever it may be, causes you to question whether those things are actually true. You can hear the psalmist doing this in the psalm. It's like he's going back and forth in this division. The first verse goes like this, vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. He's going to affirm what he believes is true. You are the God in whom I take refuge. And then he says, why have you rejected me? It's like, you just said two different things there. You are my refuge. Why are you rejecting me? Look down at verse five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He questions, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He doesn't understand why what he knows is true is not more real to his actual life experience. So if that's you, if you've ever been, or if you come in here this morning, divided between what you believe about God and your actual experience of him, then you can understand Psalm 43. Now here's where the psalm is going to lead us. It's going to show us, then what do you do? What do you do when your belief and your experience are misaligned? How do you line them back up? So it's going to help for us to first explore, like, what's causing this division what perhaps is the psalmist experiencing that is leading to this kind of division in his life? Um, now we read here, right here at the beginning, that it's unjust oppression at the hands of his enemies. Vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. 
So verse 1 tells us right here that he is surrounded by ungodly people. Um, actually, uh, if you are in the CSB translation, it, it probably has a better translation of that. It says something like unfaithful nation. So an ungodly people is an ungodly nation. It's, it's an entire group of people formed around an expression of worship that is not the one true God. So the psalmist, who also wrote the previous psalm to this, Psalm 42, and what we can gather from Psalm 42 and 43, is that the psalmist is in exile. He's an Israelite. He's part of the people of God, but he's in a period of history of Israel called exile, meaning that, meaning that he's living among a nation that does not honor, worship, or serve the God of Israel. And so his experience is living outside his faith community, among people that don't uphold the same beliefs as him, a God that he does not follow, and the temple is far from him. So he's feeling extremely distant from his community. And the result of that, of living among this nation, is that his loyalty to God is put under great pressure from these ungodly people. Now, his experience can actually be and feel pretty similar to a lot of our experience. Perhaps you've heard our culture described before. Um, this is just a common way that people will refer to it as a post-Christian secular society. Um, now, you say that, like secular can kind of be like a dirty word sometimes or like an insult, and, um, but secular is just a sociological term that describes kind of the main philosophy of our day. And a secular society is one in which the public life of a people is not dependent on any religion or spirituality. So the way in which the people exist together in public doesn't, doesn't have the foundation or isn't related to a particular religion or spirituality. So think like, where do people go to find meaning in life? Where do people turn to to make major life decisions? How do we choose to conduct ourselves in private and in public? That's, that's not based in any sort of God or spirituality. Um, the author and pastor Tim Keller describes the effect that a post-Christian secular society can have, particularly on followers of Jesus, and he describes it like this. He says, even if you are not a secular person, so perhaps you're a Christian, the secular age can thin out faith until it is seen as simply one more choice in life, along with job, recreation, hobbies, politics, rather than as the comprehensive framework that determines all of your life choices. So, so the effect of this is secularism, it puts this kind of like invisible pressure on you to adopt secular beliefs and practices instead of God or biblical or Christian beliefs and practices. So it's, it's pretty common, and as someone who works in ministry and interacts with a lot of people who are in all sorts of phases of faith and processing faith at different levels, um, it's pretty common to hear Christians, people who affirm, I, I do believe in Jesus, I believe in God, I, I affirm the things he's done for him, I, I, I affirm the, the message of the gospel. It's common to hear even Christians talk about feeling and going through long periods of feeling distant or distracted or disconnected from what once they would describe was a true and vibrant faith that they held. This is a pattern um, that I, I often come in contact with, and this has been true to my experience with many friends and many people that I've seen kind of come in and out of church um, as I've been a minister in Denver for about seven years. Um, and, and here's kind of the pattern. Here's how I, I see it often. 
You, you get like followers of Jesus who have a vision given to them what they see is from their faith in God to influence those around them in the culture. There's kind of this belief that like, hey, God has ordained the best way for society and for human flourishing to function. And so the more that we kind of live in obedience to God and trust him and we, we share that message with our neighbors and with culture and society at large, then we can shape culture in a way that it reflects more the goodness and the beauty of God. And so that's kind of the vision of, of, of being a missionary, of, of having a missionary mindset is I'm going to influence the culture around me. And so, so you see like Christians, they see themselves sort of as if you were to take a glass of water and drop some food coloring in it, drop some like blue food coloring in it. Right? And they see themselves as the food coloring permeating the water, which is culture, to look more like the kingdom of God. Um, but then, over time, the constant effect of living among most people who don't actually share that vision, who don't believe in God, who don't encourage faith, and there's many beliefs and practices just that we interact with on a regular basis set up in society, the effect of that is it's actually not like food coloring dropped into a glass of water, it's more like food coloring dropped into the ocean. If you drop food coloring into the ocean, it makes no effect. In fact, it dissolves, and it eventually you can't, you can't tell the difference between it and the ocean. And so what often happens, the pattern that I see, is instead of culture looking more like faith and looking more like you know, the influence of Christianity, Christians begin to look more like the culture, begin to sort of permeate. Faith dissolves and then sometimes you see people lose faith altogether. That's just the invisible, normative, formational effect of living in a secular society. Now, on top of just what we could call cultural liturgies, the beliefs and practices of our culture, the, apart from just the daily impact of these on faith, there's all sorts of additional pressures that we can see right now that Christians feel challenging their faith. And so I, I sat down for maybe like 10 minutes and I just thought like, what do I see is just pressuring and feel like Christians are feeling pressure on their faith. And I, and I just came up with this short list. It's probably not exhaustive. You can think of some others, but maybe you'll connect with some of these. Um, one is the evil and suffering that we see in our world. We have up close access to just all kinds of horrible suffering in our world. And it's just this heaviness that weighs on us both globally and locally that can make us begin to question the goodness of God. Uh, or perhaps moral failure from popular Christians and Christian leaders. Public church scandals and church abuse uncovered in the media. Weariness from Christian political captivity. Um, public deconversion stories that we see from popular Christian pastors and worship leaders. We can read about stories online or even short TikTok videos of, of them explaining their, not their conversion to faith, but their deconversion and all of the life that that's brought them. Um, in their story. Perhaps it's having irreligious friends and neighbors who seem like they're doing just fine. And they don't worship God or go to church. Maybe it's losing social capital because you identify with Jesus at work, in your neighborhood, among your friends, or at school. Anti-Christian rhetoric that happens in academia, on social media, in the news. Uh, or maybe it's just basic FOMO. It's just like church is tiresome, and the, the, every, the every week tiresome act of going to church when you could be traveling, you could be skiing, you could be partying, you could just be having one less thing to do on the weekend, maybe just sleep in and go to brunch, kind of sounds nice. Obedience can feel burdensome or sometimes pointless, like why am I doing this? 
Or maybe it's just wanting freedom from moral constraints. We could think specifically around the area of sexuality and sexual identity, of just wanting more freedom in those areas. All of these things can just put this pressure that leave us questioning God's goodness, doubting the major claims of Christianity, or what I see most often is just this slow drift away from faith. Like food coloring just dissolving in the ocean. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist prays to God. So what do you do if you find yourself in that place? What do you do if you find yourself with the division of what you would say you affirm is true, but you, you really can't back up currently with your experience? Well, look at what the psalmist prays. Look at verse 3 with me. He prays, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. See, what he's doing is he's asking God to realign his experience with his belief. So he prays, send out your light and your truth. Actually, this is a really, really insightful prayer. This is, this is a great insight in him praying this specific prayer, a great insight for him to realize this and for us to realize this as well. Because what he's praying is, help me to see what I know is there, but I can't find. Right? That's send out your light. You need light when you're like, I know something's there, but I can't see it. I can't find it. So send out your light. And then send out your truth. Help me to experience what I know is real. It's true. It corresponds with reality. But there are maybe things in the way or lies or clutter, and I can't see it. Um, I'll give you an example kind of from my own life of, of how we can think about this. Uh, when I first moved out to Colorado, I was in college, and um, I came out for a summer to be a camp counselor at a camp in Estes Park called Camp Timberline. And once a week at the camp, we would take all of the kids on a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park or one of the surrounding hikes. Um, it, was, it was, we just had this weekly hike week, or hike day. And one of the options you could choose for hike day was you could do a sunrise hike. So you get your kids, uh, you would only do this with the older kids, so like 13 and older. So you get a group of 14-year-olds, you wake them up at 3 in the morning, and you say, let's go on a hike so we could get to the top at sunrise, and then we'll go back and eat a ton of pancakes and take naps. And uh, it was like definitely way more for the counselors than the kids. The kids like hated it, but we were all like, come on, it'll be epic, it'll be an adventure. Um, And so on this particular day, we were going to do this local hike called Estes Cone. Um, So we woke the kids up, and we're like, we got to, you know, 3 a.m., we got to get here by 6 a.m. When the sun is rising, it'll be really beautiful. And along the way, we were dragging a little bit behind. And so I grabbed a couple of the kids, and I said, like, hey, do you want to try and sprint and make it to the top so we can actually catch the sunrise? And two of the kids were like, I'm game. Um, Now, I did not grow up in Colorado. I grew up um, outside of Chicago. And I didn't know, but I learned very quickly, that the most important thing you're supposed to have when you move to Colorado is a headlamp. I just like didn't know even what that was. And like I, I moved here and there was all these like hip, cool Colorado counselors with all these headlamps and I like didn't have that. Um, and so I was on this sunrise hike and I was the leader and I didn't have a headlamp. So um, you can imagine how this went very quickly. I'm with these two kids. I'm like, let's go, let's gun it. Here's the trail. And within like 500 feet, we're completely lost. 
And I'm just standing there in the dark, like, I have no idea where to go, guys, I'm sorry. Um, now, as I'm standing there wondering, like, how do we get to the top, I see this little, like, perfectly aligned snake of teenage girls and their leader, just, like, slowly but surely, perfectly making it along the trail. And so I just did what anybody would do in my situation. I just said, help, can you help? And their leader had a massive he- headlamp. Um, her name was Jillian, and she was born and raised in Colorado, and she'd, she'd grown up going to camp, and she'd been a counselor for three years, and she knew perfectly how to get to the top of Estes Cone. So I said, Jillian, can you show me where the trail is? And she was like, yeah, sure. And she like pointed her headlamp at it, and it's like, it's that way, go. And I was like, all right, guys, let's go. And we like sprinted. We got like another 500 feet, and then I was like, Jillian, can you show us where the, and like we ended up making it even slower than we would have if we hadn't tried to sprint. Um, By the way, Jillian eventually did uh, become the person I would marry. So this is like a very close illustration to like our marriage as much as it is to a metaphor for this psalm, right? But but here's, here's the point. Here's the point of the story is I knew there was a trail. I knew it would lead us to the top of this beautiful mountain where you'd experience the presence of God. I just couldn't see it. Like I knew it was there, but I couldn't see it. And so I prayed, send out, somebody send out your light so I can actually see what I know to be true. Without light, without a guide, God's presence can seem distant to us. We might not know how to get there. We might not know how to have fellowship with God. We feel lost. We feel on our own. And so he prays what we need to pray. Show me, God, what I know is there, but I can't see. Now, if you're here this morning and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, um, if, you, if you follow Jesus, if you are a Christian, you need to know this. You have everything you need right now to experience God and to dwell in his presence. In fact, light and truth, the very thing that the psalmist prays here, become one of the main descriptors of Jesus in the New Testament. We could point to many, many, many different areas in the New Testament where the New Testament authors describe Jesus using the language of light and truth. I'll just show you one today. This is the Gospel of John, John 1, 9 through 13. And this is like, John's Gospel is where he's like introducing Jesus to people. He's like, this is the very first thing to know about Jesus. He calls him the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of verse 3. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling, which is like saying, bring me back into fellowship with you, God. Let my experience of you align with what I know to be true of you. Jesus is the fulfillment of what this psalmist prays. He is the light that leads us back into relationship with God the Father, who we are estranged from. This was the purpose of his life. The purpose of his life was to reveal to people the Father. I, I once had a friend say to me, like, would it just, like, I wish God would just show up. Like, he's, why does he have to be invisible? Like, if, I, if he just showed up, I would believe him. And I, and I said, he showed up as a human. He's the, Jesus was the full expression and revelation of God. Every way in which we see Jesus is how we know God. And so that was the purpose of his life. In fact, this is the purpose of his death, too. 
His death cleanses us from ungodliness. It, it realigns an attitude that actually runs away from God, that rejects God. It realigns it so that we can come back into fellowship with God. In fact, this is the purpose of his resurrection. His resurrection gives us new life in God's kingdom where we enjoy fellowship with him. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the light and the truth with you. And in fact, if you're not sure what you believe about Christianity, if you're not sure if you have even intellectual affirmation of, doct- of the Christian doctrines, and yet today, if you would receive Jesus, if you would believe in him and what he's done on your behalf in the gospel, then, he, then God does receive you like a daughter. He receives you like a son. And as a child... Your father is full of, the fullest expression of him towards you is his love and his delight over you. In fact, that just might be what some of you who are feeling distant need to know this morning. Might be the main thing you need to take away. That the full expression of how God is relating to you this morning is one of love and delight. Remember, he's the truth. Do you know what the key to truth is? Truth does not change based on your experience. Your feelings towards something or your your experience of something does not shape reality. Rather, your experience is shaped by reality. So your doubt, if you're doubting, your doubt doesn't change the reality of what Jesus has done. It's still true. Your failures, the number of times you've failed, does not make God love you any less. Even if you you come in feeling like shamed of what this week looked like, even if you come in knowing that you're not living up to all that you want to be in life, and so your experience might be God's disappointed in me, God's rejecting me, God sees me as a failure, that may be what you feel, but it's not true. All he has towards you is mercy, compassion, love, and delight because you're his son or his daughter. And so some of you may be feeling sort of like guilty about where you're at in faith right now. Like, you know you should trust God more. You, you know you've been really distracted recently and you're not focused on him. You, you know you're supposed to have, like, confidence in him and be, like, courageous. You know your weakness. You know your failings. The answer for you and the, and the takeaway for you from this psalm is not do better. Figure it out. And then maybe you can come back to God. No, no, no. Rest. Just enjoy the finished work of what Jesus has done, not what you've done. Now, I want you to hear the psalmist doing this with God. Look at verse 4 with me. After he prays, send out your light and your truth. Let those be the things that lead me back into your presence. He prays, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. The word here for joy, you'll you'll see that it says, to God my exceeding joy. This is emphatic. It also is the word delight. It's like saying joy above all joys. Like God, let, let you be my greatest joy, first in my life, first in my heart. So what he's doing is he's celebrating what God has done. He's celebrating the very reality and the fact of what God has done. And so then he praises him for it. And as he praises him for it, it's returning God to the rightful spot of the main orientation of his heart. 
the joy above all other joys. And he knows that only God can take that place in his heart. And so Psalm 43 compels us to remember our one and only true source of lasting joy. That's a relationship with God the Father. Okay, now at this point in the psalm, he stops praying. Once you get to verse 4, he actually stops praying and he's going to do something else now. So if, if you just like look at verses 1 through 4, you can see they're all oriented towards God. They're referencing, they're, they're referring to God. So we know that he's praying during that time. But verse 5, he changes who he's speaking to. Verse 5, he begins to talk to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Now speaks more to himself. Self, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So now he's, he's changing from prayer. He's going to speak to himself. And this question where he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's not actually asking the question. This is a rhetorical question, right? He's really actually making a statement. So like rhetorical question. So for example, if I turn to my wife late at, you know, late in the evening and I say, um, should we get Chipotle for dinner? I'm not asking her. <laughs> like I'm making a statement. I want Chipotle for dinner, right? But I've just kind of posed it as a question. This is sort of what he's doing to himself. He's saying like, hey, what? Like, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? In, in other words, you have no reason to be. Like in light of all that I know to be true about you, God, like you're a refuge. You're a defender of the weak. You're just, you're true. You gave us the death and resurrection of Jesus. You are a father who, are my, who is my greatest source of joy. Like he's saying like, self, you're out of reasons to be this low. You've got nothing left. You, you can't stay like this anymore in light of who God is. And so therefore, hope in God. Praise him. Trust him. Return to him. Enjoy his presence. Enjoy fellowship with him because he's given everything that you need for that. So he's speaking to himself to trust what he already knows is true. Now, actually, modern uh, psychologists have identified that there's actually real power behind doing this behind speaking to yourself and reminding yourself what you actually know is true. Um, they've actually coined a, a, a kind of therapy for this. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy. Perhaps this is something that you're familiar with. Uh, it kind of became popular, this kind of therapy, more on the popular level through an Atlantic article that was written a few years back called The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, this was actually later written um, and published as a book. The book is excellent, but sometimes I'm like, if you ain't got time for a book, here's an Atlantic article, you know, you'll get the gist of it. Um, but uh, The Coddling of the American Mind is excellent at kind of diagnosing a lot of the fracturing and the fragility of the modern emotional experience that many people have. And, and they really com combat it with what they call cognitive behavioral therapy. And so this is what the authors say in this book. He says, for millennia, philosophers have understood that we don't see life as it is. We see a version distorted by our hopes, fears, and other attachments. The Buddha said, our life is the creation of our mind. Marcus Aurelius said, life itself is but what you deem it. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a modern embodiment of this ancient wisdom. It is the most extensively studied non-pharmaceutical treatment of mental illness and is used widely to treat depression, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, and addiction. And here's how it works. 
See if you match some of the patterns with what the psalmist is saying. He says, the goal is to minimize distorted thinking and see the world more accurately. You start by learning the names of the dozen or so most common cognitive distortions, such as overgeneralizing, discounting positives, emotional reasoning. And each time you notice yourself falling prey to one of them, you name it, describe the facts of the situation, consider alternative interpretations, and then you choose an interpretation of events more in line with the facts. Your emotions follow your new interpretation. In time, this process becomes automatic. When people improve their mental hygiene in this way, when they free themselves from the repetitive, irrational thoughts that had previously filled so much of their consciousness, they become less depressed, less anxious, and less angry. So what they're saying is you identify what is causing the separation between your experience and your knowledge. What mental distortion is disrupting your patterns of thought? And then you realign your thinking with what you actually know is true. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, he actually shows us how this works in a more spiritual sense, so a less emotional, psychological sense in a more spiritual sense. Um, he, uh, he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, and he actually comments on verse 5 in Psalm 43, where he talks about putting away mental distortions of God that creep into your life and then realigning yourself with what is actually true. So he says something very similar, but more in a spiritual sense. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You have to take yourself in hand, address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, unbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, what God has pledged himself to do. Having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, defy other people, defy the devil, defy the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the, for the help of his countenance, who is also my salvation and my God. I don't think Martin Lloyd-Jones used the CSB or the ESV when he said that. Now, Here's a great way to reflect on Psalm 43. Simply ask yourself, what is the shaping effect of cultural liturgies in my life? So what do I mean by that? Cultural liturgies, patterns that you interact with on a daily basis. So where is most of my time and focus spent? What am I most prone to spend money on? Who are the loudest voices I'm listening to? What's the first thing that you, that you do in the morning and what's the last thing you do before you lay your head down at night? That's shaping you. That's forming you. That's causing you to believe certain things. Take inventory. Audit yourself with cultural formation. And then, what if you allowed yourself to hear a voice louder than the others? What if you allowed yourself to hear first from the truth, from the light, from God himself revealed to us in his word? So what if every day, whatever you do first thing in the morning, I'm just going to guess for some of you, it's straight to your phone and what you do on that. You know, I don't know, maybe it's Instagram, maybe it's the news. What if instead of that, you started every day with reading a psalm and praying through your day? That was the first voice you heard in the morning. 
What it, like you, you actually could just do this. You could just start at Psalm 1, and then the next day you can do Psalm 2, and then the next day Psalm 3. I'm not going to count to 150 for you, but you get the point. And then you just start over and do it again. You read a psalm every day, and you begin your day praising God, giving honor and celebrating the one who has gone on our behalf. And then you began to speak the good news of Jesus to yourself. What is true? I'm a beloved child of God who was created to know my Father, and Jesus gave me the very assurance of this through his death and resurrection on my behalf. And you grounded yourself in that truth, and then you closed the day going to sleep, thanking God, remembering his goodness, going, taking stock of your day, and just praising God for everything that he's done for you that day. And all the while you're preaching to yourself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Hope in God, for he is my salvation. And you're resting in that truth. This is why when Jesus called his church to gather, he asked them every week, and he gave them a ritual that they would gather around to remember what is true of him in his death and resurrection. This is why he gave us the Lord's table. This is why he gave us the broken bread and the poured out blood in the cup to remind us, to give us this like tangible expression to realign what we know is true with our experience of him. And so when you take of communion, you're actually embodying like your senses are involved, right? You're tasting, you're touching, you're experiencing so that it would be this tangible reminder of what is true. Jesus has gone on your behalf in his death to be an atonement for your sin, to reconcile you to God. And you eat it as a way, as a way of reminding yourself of your union to him and your trust in him. And so that's what we're going to participate in right now. I'm going to invite you um, during this time of worship to participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus, which reconciles us to God and gives us a tangible reminder of what he's done in his death and resurrection. And then I just want to invite you just to praise God where, however you come in this morning to realign your experience with what's true of him by just giving him thanks and giving him praise. And so right now during this next time of worship, let's come to him and experience the presence of God.